My name is Wade, um, one of the pastors here at Indelible Grace Church, and I'm uh, humbled to be here. So today is known as Palm Sunday in the Christian calendar, and um, this is what we've been talking about. This is the beginning of the Holy Week um, for Christians, and this is the week that we remember and we focus on the days leading up to the death of Christ and his subsequent resurrection. So Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is what we call the triumphal entry. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem with a whole lot of fanfare. And the scene is it's joyous, but only Jesus knew the full extent and the significance of what was going to happen. Uh, there's a verse in the Gospel of Luke that, that says that Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem when the days drew near for him to be taken up into heaven. So he knows that his days are limited. He knows the full uh, magnitude of what's happening on this Palm Sunday. And there's this prophecy in Isaiah 50 that says that Jesus, he set his face like flint as he neared the day of his execution. And flint is a very uh, hard type of sedimentary rock. This is the type of rock that's that that was used to make tools before our modern tools today. And when the prophet Isaiah, when he writes that his face was set like flint, he's saying that Jesus was completely, absolutely resolute in his journey to the cross. Nothing could distract him from it. And that's the attitude I hope that we'll have this week as we go on through the week, that we would focus on the cross. And at the end of this week, we're going to have a Good Friday service at... Um, I forget the name of the church, but it's it's on a uh, Redwood Boulevard. It's Redwood Church, I believe. Um, Redwood Chapel. Uh, so we'll have a chance for us to meditate on, on on the meaning, the significance, the weight of the cross with each other. So that's where we're going to head in the coming days. And today we're going to begin the journey as we uh, settle into the story of Holy Week. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul, he tells his church that he was determined, he was resolved to know nothing among them except Jesus and him crucified. And my intent today, as we look at this passage in Galatians, which we'll read in just a moment, my intent for us this morning is that we take on this attitude of Paul, that we would desire nothing but Jesus and Jesus crucified. So for the next few moments we have together, we're saying Jesus is worthy of all our attention. He's worthy of all our attention and devotion and sacrifice in the coming days of Holy Week. He's worthy of our entire lives. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we cannot think of Jesus apart from the crucifixion. This is the Jesus that we believe in. Jesus crucified. And this is enough for us to ponder for all eternity. If you've read through the book of Revelation, you might remember that there is this scene. There are several scenes of worship in heaven, but there's this one scene where all the creatures are worshiping Jesus. But there is a descriptor there. there the, all the creatures don't just worship Jesus. They worship Jesus crucified they say worthy is the lamb who was slain worthy is a lamb who was slain that means that for all eternity for all eternity jesus is identified by his suffering by his death so as we look at the text in galatians today 
We're going to focus on this instrument of his crucifixion. We're going to focus on the cross. And we're going to read it together right now. This is from Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. You can look on your bulletins, on your phone. Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. This is Paul writing to the Galatian church. It is to those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the word of God. And I chose today's passage from Galatians because, like Jesus on Palm Sunday, our eyes need to be focused, fixed, disciplined on the cross. And just like Jesus, our lives need to be identified primarily by his death on the cross. I think this is what Paul is saying in Galatians 6. And my goal in the next few moments is for us to understand how the cross reshapes our understanding of ourselves and of Jesus. And here is a strong word from Martin Lloyd-Jones. If the cross is not central to you, you are not a Christian. If the cross is not central to you, then you are not, are not a Christian. For those of us who consider ourselves Christians, may we take this time to think about whether this is true of our own lives. Is the cross central to my life? And if you're still exploring the Christian faith, if this is new to you, if you don't believe yet, I want to say to you, first off, that we are so glad that you're with us. You are always welcome here. We hope that you'll find a home here. We hope that we can become friends to you, that we can share the hope that we have. And I also say to you that if we're being faithful, if we're doing it right, then you're going to be turned off by this message that we preach. You're going to be offended and insulted by this message that we preach. So welcome to our church. This message is for all of us here. That we can't be neutral to the cross. We can't be neutral. We shouldn't get used to it. We shouldn't be comfortable with it. Because it says something not only about us, but it also demands something from us. So we have three points today to remind us of this truth. Number one, the offense of the cross Number two, what it means to boast in the cross. And number three, the new creation because of the cross. The offense, the boasting, and the new creation. So our first point, the offense of the cross. So Paul, he begins today's passage by by referencing this group of teachers in the Galatian church. They're called the Judaizers. And what they taught was that people must be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. And if you've studied the Old Testament, you, may, you might remember that circumcision was a marker for those who were God's people. This was an, an identifier. And Paul, when he came to the Galatian church, he taught them a, a message of, of salvation by grace through faith alone. Salvation by grace through faith alone. And these false teachers, they came into the Galatian church, or they were part of it, and they, they told them, yes to grace, yes to faith, but there's more. 
those things were not enough. Circumcision is necessary if you want to be accepted by God. So Paul, he hears their message. He hears the trouble that they're causing. And he points out their motivations in teaching this. He says, number one, they want to avoid persecution by those who accuse the Galatian church of not following the law. That's verse 12. And then in verse 13, Paul presses it further. He says, not only did they want the Galatians to be circumcised to avoid persecution, they also wanted it so that they could be respected and admired by others. Because that meant that they could say that they added something to their salvation. They, they did something to earn their favor with God. So circumcision was an identifier to these Judaizers. It was what made them them. And in this, in this passage, Paul is saying, no, it can't be circumcision. This adds nothing to your standing with God. It does nothing to make you more acceptable. Now, we may not be super familiar or we may not identify with this idea of circumcision, but it was something that was very familiar to this, this audience that Paul was writing to. It was something that they could do. And this idea of us being able to do something to earn favor and acceptance before God, this is, this, this is how we think. And what this message that Paul taught, it, it went away our natural, went, went against our natural way of thinking. Because we all want to be identified with something that matters. We all want to be known for something. Uh, two weeks ago, the skateboarder Tony Park, he retired his signature, one of his signature moves. It was called the Ollie 540. And if you're not familiar with skateboarding, um, here's a little lesson. Tony Hawk, he, he's been the most famous face of the sport for decades. He has his own video game. Um, he's known for, for this phrase, uh, do a kickflip. So he, there, people, whenever they see him at the airport or on the street, they say, do a kickflip. People love Tony Hawk. And he's considered as by everyone as one of the greatest skateboarders in the world. And early in his career, he perfected this Ollie 540 move. Uh, this is when the skateboarder goes up a ramp and he does one and a half rotations before coming down. And over the years, he, he's done this. He's done more impressive Ollies. He's done bigger Ollies. But the 540 is what people know him for. Tony Hawk, he is older now. He's 52 years old. And this trick has taken a toll on his body. So he decided... I can't do this anymore, but I'm going to do it one more time. And this was kind of a big deal in the sports world. Uh, a film crew, they, they filmed his many attempts to land this trick. And when he finally landed it, he fell to his knees and he put his, his, his face in his hands and he started crying. Now, why was this such a big deal that Tony Hawk would retire his Ollie 540 move? Not just to him, but to the sports world. Why was it worthy of being filmed by a professional crew? Why did he break down in tears? And I think the reason is this. Because the Ollie 540 was a part of him. People identified this with Tony Hawk. It's because he worked hard to perfect it. And he took pride in it. It was a part of him. Now, did you know that we all have 
some type of Ollie 540 in our lives. It's either something that we've made a part of us or we want to be a part of us. So a few questions. What is essential to you as a human being? What is essential to who you are? Is it your positive attitude? Is it your charity and generosity? Is it your affable personality? Is it your ability to regulate your emotions? Is it your list of accomplishments? We're talking about boasting. If these things are central to who you are, then that is your boast. Or you could ask other questions. What do you feel threatened by? What criticisms sting the most? Who are you afraid of? These questions shine a light on the things that we not only care about, but we pride ourselves in and perhaps even build our life on. And the cross says this, that all these things count for nothing. They count for nothing when it comes to God's acceptance or rejection of you. Let me take it one step further. The cross not only says that these things about you, these things that you care about, that these things count for nothing. It says it goes beyond that. The cross also says that you are worse off than you think you are. I mentioned earlier that we shouldn't get used to this idea of the cross. We shouldn't become comfortable with the idea of the cross. And the reason is because anyone who knew anything about the cross 2,000 years ago could not be comfortable with the idea of the cross either. The Jews viewed it as a cross of signs curse. The Jews viewed the cross as a sign of God's curse. And the Gentiles saw the cross as the most damning judgment on a person. It was a public spectacle designed to shame the enemies of Rome, the worst offending criminals. It was offensive to everyone. Everyone was a little bit repulsed by the idea of the cross. It wasn't just the physical torture. Russell Moore likens the shame of the cross to the shame of being on a registered sex offenders list. Meaning that no one wanted to have anything to do with you. Fleming Rutledge makes the observation that the goal of crucifixion was the total annihilation of a person. Cross was about dehumanization. So then what does the cross say about us? Paul says you should boast in the cross. So what does the cross say about us? Imagine with me a few scenarios. Imagine this, that the people that you care most about, the people whose opinion matters most to you, they tell you, we are massively disappointed in you. We don't like you anymore. We don't want you in our group of friends. Please leave. Or imagine your manager sitting down with you during your annual review, and he says this. You haven't met a single metric. You've contributed nothing to the team. And honestly, we're really bummed that we hired you. It was a huge mistake. Or imagine this. Your spouse says to you that they are embarrassed to be your spouse. 
and they regret ever marrying you. Imagine that in 20 years, your children tell you that they hate the life that, they, that you provided for them, that they resent you for messing them up, that they're ashamed to carry on your family name. How would you feel if you heard those things? The cross says that you are even worse than that. Because our sins, the ways in which we've offended God by rejecting his rule over our lives, our sins deserve the punishment of the cross. So here's the offense of the cross. The cross says that you are a failure. The cross says that you are a sinner. Contrary to the things that you're going to hear in pop media, you are not enough. Your efforts to clean yourself up are not enough. Your promises that you make are not enough. Your church attendance is not enough. Your good theology is not enough. Your progressivism or your conservatism are not enough. Your kindness and your sacrifices, not enough. Your suffering, even your patient suffering with a good attitude, is not enough. None of these things can make up for the ways that you've offended your God. The offense of the cross is this, is that you deserve to be shamed you deserve to be tortured on the cross. And as Michael pointed out earlier, you deserve hell. And if you haven't felt insulted by the message of the cross, then you can't understand Christianity. If you aren't disturbed by the truth of the cross, then Good Friday isn't really all that good to you. And Resurrection Sunday isn't going to mean much to you if you're not insulted by this message. This is the offense of the cross. But I have good news for you, fellow sinners. Our second point, boasting in the cross. Look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul says that boasting in itself is not bad. Boasting in itself is not bad as long as you're boasting in the right thing. The false teachers in in the Galatian church were boasting in circumcision. It was something for them to take pride in. In fact, it was something that they said is worth sticking your eternity on. Now keep that in mind when you think about what it means to, to boast. What is the basis of your life? What is your identity founded upon? Whatever you boast in, whatever, whatever you think brings you glory and honor, these things are at the center of your personality. It's what you've chosen to build your life on. It's what determines your view of yourself and of others. What you boast in is the grid by which you evaluate the world and current events. What you boast in is the principle that drives your thinking and your actions and your words. So what is it? Is it your intellect? Is it your relational savvy? Is it your charisma? 
is it your kindness? Paul says that you can't make those things central to your being. Paul says, look at that instrument of shame and death and make that central. Build your identity on that. Stake your your eternity on that. Make your life about that and nothing else. Paul says that is the only thing that we should boast in. We can only glory in the cross. Are you willing to lay down the titles that you've collected over the years, over the course of your life, and claim the cross as the only thing that you identify with? This is really hard for us because this church is full of competent people who've experienced success in their careers and perhaps in your families and relationships. Sometimes our competency can be a curse. We've invested in organizations and causes, good and worthy organizations and causes, by the way, And we've spent so much time and energy developing and improving ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with those things until they become central to who we are. And I think we underestimate how easily we let them become central. How do we determine what is central in our lives? Uh, There's this interesting phenomenon phenomena of uh, famous people insuring parts of themselves. So this is a thing, I guess, if you're really rich and famous, you can insure your body parts. So uh, here's a, a list, a small list of, of some of these celebrities. Bruce Springsteen, the boss, he insured his voice for $6 million in case anything ever happens to it. Mariah Carey, uh, she insured her vocal cords for $35 million. The soccer star, Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo, correct me if, uh, if I pronounce this incorrectly, he insured his legs for $140 million. And T. Swift, Taylor Swift, she reportedly had her legs, not her voice, her legs, insured for $40 million during a recent tour. Why do these people do this? It's because they, there's they perceive these parts of themselves to be valuable. They perceive these parts of themselves to be a part of their persona. Their careers depend on these things. So much so that if they ever lost use of them, they would consider a vital part of themselves dead. So how do we determine what's central in our lives? What aspect of your personality would you ensure? What element of your life would you ensure? What are you terrified of losing? Your answer to that question is what's central to you. And our passage says today, consider that dead. Because you cannot be defined by that any longer. And Paul says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look only at the cross. 
your life depends on it. Your entire being must be staked on it. Your actions must be defined by it. He says, look at the cross and nothing else. Make that your boast. Make that your glory. Make that the honor of your life. Look at the cross and feel the weight of your sin. See Jesus on the cross suffering in your place. See the cross as the place where the infinite, holy, and eternal God condescended, coming to the world that he created, being made lower than the people that he created, dehumanized, suffering on their behalf. Why? Because he loved us. See the cross as God's ultimate expression of his steadfast love for you. And when the cross becomes your boast, everything in your life changes. And this leads to our final point. The new creation. So Paul writes in verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The new creation that Paul writes about here is this, this new reality that we live in through the cross. The cross means that neither circumcision or uncircumcision, these things that defined what, they, what, what the false teachers thought defined us, neither one of these things matter anymore because you cannot build an identity upon those things. Those who boast in the cross are governed by this new principle. What's the basis of this boast? Look at verse 14. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The only way that you'll be able to make the cross central, the only way that you'll be able to boast in the cross is if we're able to think of our lives and the world in terms of death. Now, this may be a very simple principle, but we forget it so often. In order for there to be new life, there must be a death. And when Paul says that the world has been crucified to us and we to the world, he's saying this, that the things that used to capture our attention, the things that, w- that used to bring us happiness and sadness, these things no longer have the same power over us. We don't abide by the values and systems of the world. It means that we don't live for the admiration of the world because we don't need it. We don't have to give in to its values We're okay with being shamed and persecuted. We're okay with being misunderstood. This is what it means to be part of this new creation. Donald Guthrie, the commentator, explains it this way. The natural world as such has ceased to have any claims on us. And this means that the world and all its demands and all its attacks won't phase us. It won't cause us undue stress. We don't feel the need to respond to every criticism. We don't feel the need to maintain a certain image. When the world demands that you be a certain way, you can rest secure in your identity as a child of God. And this is the biggest thing, that you now have a relationship with your creator. You've been reconciled to God. You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. As a new creation, when you're criticized, You don't need to defend yourself. Because what does the cross say? The cross says that your worst critic, everything that they say of you, doesn't come close to the truth about you. You're even worse than that. 
But the cross also says that you are loved beyond imagination, even more than if everyone in the world thought that you were the greatest person in the world. This is what the cross says. When you fail, you don't need to view failure as a judgment of who you are. It allows you the freedom to say, yes, I've failed, but that does not define me. When you're wronged, it means you can forgive because the cross affirms the justice of God. God will one day deal with with injustice perfectly. In the meantime, you can forgive others as God forgave you through Christ on the cross. When you sense that God is asking you to obey him in certain areas, you can do it knowing that it's not to earn his favor, it's not to appease him, because that has been done on the cross already. To tell us it is finished. You cannot add anything to that. It's been done for you already. So what's your motive for obedience? You can do it knowing that whatever he's asking of you is ultimately for his good. He will never tell you to do something that's not for your good. When you're tempted by greed, you can know that everything you will ever need is in Christ Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, this is the cross, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? When you're suffering, you can look at the cross and you can see that Jesus suffered far more than you ever will for your sake. And just as God used the deepest suffering in all of history for good, You can be confident that your suffering is not meaningless. You're not alone in your suffering. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And God will use your suffering in ways that you can't imagine now. So this is what it means for the world to be crucified to us and us to the world. It means that we can live a life of confidence and of trust and happy submission Because it doesn't matter what the world says about us or throws at us. The cross is your glory. The cross is your anchor. Boast in that. Make your life about that. As we move toward the cross in the coming days, look at that and say, that's what I want my life to be about. What else can it be about? So how should we respond? And I'm going to end with this. Spurgeon invites us to consider how we're to respond. He said this in the 1800s. Oh, you redeemed ones on whose behalf this strong resolve was made. You who have been bought by the precious blood of the steadfast, resolute redeemer. Come and think a while of him that your hearts may burn within you and that your faces may be set like flints to live and die for him who lived and died for you. You see his reference to Isaiah 50, that our faces may be set like flints to live and die for him who lived and died for you. How then shall we respond to the truth of the cross? Nate's going to lead us in a song in just a moment. In the cross alone I glory. And here are a few lines. In the cross alone I glory, holding fast the word of life, toiling not in vain, but being poured out as a sacrifice. 
If the cross is our boast, we can be poured out as an offering. This is the only proper response to the cross. This is our act of worship to be poured out for him. And I'm going to end by quoting these words by Isaac Watts from the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. May the cross be our all. Will you pray with me? Father, we forget this over and over and over. This truth of the cross. But I pray that you would remind us again, like you always do, because we're such forgetful creatures. Remind us again, especially this Holy Week, that the cross is central. That we have life because Jesus died. But death is not the end of it. In a week, we'll be celebrating the resurrection You give us new life through the cross, God. So I pray that you would remind us of that, set that truth upon us, write that in our hearts, God. And may we respond to you in worship because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.